1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Lawrence Ralph, who is the author of the book, Ceto An American Teenager and the City That Failed Him, published by Hatchet Book Group and Grand Central Press. Dr. Ralph, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you about your book um, today. And normally we begin the podcast with an introductory question. And so uh, in the book, uh, which is called Cito, An American Teenager and the City that Failed Him, you follow the life and death of Cito, or his name is uh, Luis Alberto Quinonez, who is your stepson's half-brother. Um, You're also the author of the books, Renegade Dreams and the Torture Letters, which is in which you analyze urban violence. And so how did you come to study urban violence? And how did you come to write the book, *Sito*?
2: Thanks for that. Um, I think, you know, how I came to study urban violence, I think is a question that um, I think dates back to just why I was interested in academia. And I think I was interested in academia in order to solve social problems. And I was interested in the social problems that impact African-American youth um, since before I knew I wanted to be a professor. And I was just fascinated by those issues. And so when I eventually learned that I wanted to go to grad school uh, during undergrad, I gravitated towards anthropology because it's a discipline where you get to spend a lot of time with people, uh, get to know them, and see the world through their eyes. And I felt that what I had read about the problems of youth violence lacked that. You know, I didn't I didn't see that perspective in what I was reading oftentimes. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And uh, I ended up going to University of Chicago to study anthropology. And while I was there, I did a lot of work in the uh, nonviolent sector and did a lot of volunteering um, to, to stop violence and anti-violence initiatives. And that's when I became familiar with gang violence and the subject of my first book, Renegade Dreams, where it really looks at injury and violence and the relationship between injury and violence. And uh, I was fascinated by people who become shot and injured or paralyzed and how they recover from that injury. Later on, I began to study police violence and the problem of police violence. And I was interested in similar issues on, like, how does police and violence produce harms that are long-term and injuries that are long-term, traumas that are long-term, but also how do individuals heal and repair and also how do communities repair? Um, And so I, I kind of had that experience when I decided to write the Cito book, which also deals with um, violence, urban violence, um, and kind of grapples with the possibility of healing from violence, both on an individual level, on a communal level, uh, on a familial level, uh, and and really searches for for ways to do that um, using the anthropological perspective, which is Seeing the world from Sito's eyes and and what he experienced in um, the kind of life that he lived.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. Um, that is the book is really uh, fascinating, and you really do get that perspective uh, from from Sito and from the perspective of him and his family and community. Um, so he was Sito was killed in twenty nineteen. And five years prior to that, he encountered the person who who killed him when the person's brother was killed. Um, and since the book is called Sito and it focuses on him, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about him, who he was, um, and how his death impacted your perspective on urban violence.
2: Yeah, I'd like to say that Sito, his life was extraordinary in some ways. I mean, as you mentioned, he, at the age of 14, he was, he both witnessed the murder and was charged with the murder and incarcerated. And that event and that incarceration kind of impacted the trajectory of his life. Um, ultimately, um, the public defender who represented him found footage that showed that he did not commit the murder, but he was still um labeled a criminal uh, and that that label haunted him and um, five years later he ended up being murdered uh, by the little brother of the person he was uh, charged with killing and so it, it his life was extraordinary in the sense that you know he he went through some really... Horrific ordeals with incarceration and then um, having that, that label attached to him. But on the other hand, his life was familiar for me because I encountered people like him, you know, throughout my life growing up, uh, but also like in my research specifically with the gangs in Chicago and a lot of youth who may not have gone through things that were as traumatic or as dramatic as him, but they also had entanglements with the criminal justice system from a young age. And those entanglements affected their relationships and their their family relationships, their relationships with their peers, and it impacted their outlook on the world. and. In many ways, it prevented them from uh, living the lives that they imagined for themselves and and flourishing the ways that their talents um, would have allowed them to do were they in another situation.
3: Yeah. And you mentioned that the, you know, criminal justice system and how it it plays like this major role in the book um, because Cito was uh, kind of entangled in it. Um, And so one of the themes in the book is around whether a minor should be charged as a as a minor or as an adult for a crime. And, you know, this emerges when you begin the book with Sito's family and um, after he's killed and, in, and it impacts Sito and his entanglements with the law. And then it also comes up with the trial for Sito's killer. This is a constant theme um, in the book. And so I wondered if you could talk about, you know, this issue of, of whether a minor should be charged as a, as a minor or an adult for a crime, um, some of the complexities of it and, and how your views of it, you know, shifted.
2: Great. So I think first, um, it first comes up in the book when Sito is accused of murder at 14. And at that time, the district attorney of San Francisco at that time is contemplating whether or not to charge him as an adult. Um, He decides to let a judge determine that in what's called a fitness hearing. And there's a lot of pressure from the media and petitions circulating around um, advocating for him to be tried as an adult when he was 14. And so I look at that in terms of how that impacted his life, but also how it impacted his family. Um, And then later, when Sito was killed by a 17-year-old at the time, uh, there's a new district attorney who really staunchly opposes trying juveniles as adults and won't consider the matter. And um, it's a campaign pledge of his to um, not to do that. Right. And so I mentioned those things for, for a couple of reasons. One is that um uh, from the perspective of Cito's family, because he was going to, in all likelihood, uh, face, uh, well, he was facing immense pressure, the DA at the time, to try Sito as an adult. And that was a good possibility until video footage um, showed that he didn't commit the crime. there's a way in which the legal system feels arbitrary because the same crime committed by youth gets vastly different treatment and then partially the reason for the arbitrariness is because of election cycles and the way that the pendulum of justice around these matters can change from election to election and in the political climate, which is of the US, we know that there's you know, very extreme polarities between what people in different parties believe. Uh, but how it plays out on the ground is this notion of arbitrary justice. And when justice seems arbitrary, it opens the door for people to take violence in their own hands and fulfill their own sense of justice. So I felt it important to kind of put aside my own belief, which is that juveniles shouldn't be tried as an adult, um, and to really sit with this complex dynamic because Cito's family, they weren't saying that uh, Cito's killer should be tried as an adult because they felt he was like evil or something like that. But they were saying it because that's what was happening to Cito, and I couldn't understand how the very same office just years later could advocate for something totally different when he was the victim of crime as opposed to the uh, purported perpetrator of crime. And so for me, this suggests that we really need to take uh, a national stance uh come to a consensus on, like, where we stand as a country on issues like juvenile justice instead of leaving it up to the discretion of prosecutors who may be in and out of election cycles and may be uh, recalled as what happened with the San Francisco DA who was in charge of um, Cito's case.
3: Yeah, I think that that's so important, um, what you said about us coming to a uh, um, like a national stance about this and not leaving it up to election cycles and and whatnot and the arbitrariness of the um, of the of the situation and you and you also talked about like you know things that happened to Cito. Um, I wanted to turn to how you there how you kind of reconstruct his life in one of the chapters um in chapter 10 which is called the storm inside you discuss the effects of the juvenile detention center on sito and um and so after he's released from from jail he feels this sense of like fear and anxiety um and he's in school one day and he's he's basically triggered by another student who's simply wearing this army fatigue t-shirt um, and so basically you came to understand him as having these feelings of, um, of anxiety and you, you use your cousin's experience with PTSD and your stepson Neto's experience to try to reconstruct, you know, like this interiority for Sito. And so I wondered if you could explain like how you in- integrated these past experiences and your general knowledge of um, urban youth to fill in these pieces of Sito's story.
2: Yeah. I mean, I really wanted to complicate like how people were perceiving him versus how he may have felt, and in some cases, how he told his loved ones that he felt, right? And so I think there were certain people that he confided in, um, his mom, his dad, his stepbrother, his aunt, about his anxieties. And Uh, What triggered him and his hesitation to do things that are associated with normal teenage youth, like, you know, go outside to restaurants or, you know, go for walks and things like that. And so he was always thinking about these things in terms of what is the chance that I may get victimized? What is the chance that I might run into somebody who uh, has a problem with me? And uh, as you mentioned, like, I had that experience um, when my stepson was uh, just coming home after he had been incarcerated. And so I recognized immediately, like, the ways that that kind of can play out. and and manifest in terms of like day-to-day interactions with people and the environment from Sito's perspective. So I wanted to give voice to that. You know, I heard a lot of stories about things that Cito did that seemed, um, brash and seemed like there was no thought to them, but, uh, I wanted to kind of rewrite those things from the perspective of somebody who was easily triggered, somebody who was um, anticipating that at any moment he could encounter violence. And so there's parts of the book where I imagine what Sito could have been feeling, and or I draw on what he told other people that he was feeling in order to complicate this idea that he was just a um, quick tempered youth, you know, with, with a reckless and, and, and no disregard for his own sense of safety. Right. I wanted to really uh, complicate that narrative.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Yeah, I think this attention to emotions and interiority is so important. And we tend to not see that when talking about young people in general, but also young people in urban environments um, in, in that way. Um, and so you also have these, these references to Yoruba religion throughout the book. And, uh, one example is when you talk about Ashe in relationship to Renee, who is Sito's father and his father works with gangs and anti-violence. And you describe Ashe as meaning, uh, quote, power, grace, and life. And you say, um, Aisha, uh, your wife once used it in reference to Renee's anti-violence mentorship. Um, and so this is just one example of your use of Yoruba religion. But you use it; um, you include these, you know, folk stories, stories about different Yoruba gods and concepts, um, in the book. And so I wondered, and, and I liked it a lot because it made me, of course, think about Brazil and and Candomblé. And so I was familiar with some of the concepts, but I also learned. Um, much more as well, and so I wondered what what inspired you to include these religious references, and you know what effect you hope to create with them.
2: Yeah, I think one aspect of um, the way that Sito's family and his community has been able to grapple with this his death is through spirituality, and so I wanted to find a way to honor that in the telling of his story. And so I think that's one reason because it, it kind of, it points to, um, it, it points to a mode of healing that is, that is outside the realm of governance. Uh, and I think sometimes there is no recourse for healing within the system as it exists. So what are people doing? Um, given that fact. And so I think, it, you know, I'm always attuned to like how people are healing and how people repair. And I think this is one key aspect of it. Another another aspect of it is when, you know, my editor was saying, um, she asked me to, on one of the rounds of drafts that I was doing to like include, more about his community, and more about um, just the the sense of community that was around it around him, right? To because, like at that point, it was just at the level of Cito's story and the scholarship, what the scholarship suggests about his life. Uh, so, in thinking about ways that I can do that, I was really drawn to again, aspects of healing and culture, but they manifested in two ways. One was through spirituality and the traditions of his family. And the other was through the murals in San Francisco. And so I describe art a lot as a way to kind of think through how people are grappling with violence in the environment, how they're representing it, in a different way besides the headlines. And I also um, brought the spiritual aspect because it was authentic to his community and also thinking through how people are gonna make sense of his life and death and his story as well.
3: Yeah, that was really really powerful. I liked how the book how you talk about the murals in the book, and it really evokes the sense of place as well. Um, you talk about the the neighborhood and the the buildings, and um, really it gives you a sense of of where you know all of this is happening and what the, what the surrounding built environment looks like for for people in the in the community. Um, but you also you talked about that like his his community and his family. Um, and so that that's interesting that that may have came in a little bit. Uh, in, in another draft, because um, I thought it was interesting to see how Sito is part of this expan- expansive web of family relations. Um, the family is really front and center in that you see like his parents, his siblings, his cousins, his aunts and uncles, his grandmother. I mean, they're they're really there in the book. And I thought in the news, you know, victims and perpetrators, they may appear as like individual people separate from from kin. And people might even like blame the family for things that have happened. But but you show in the book that the family was really doing what they could for him when he was alive and after he was killed. Um, and so so in the book, you argue that it was actually like the city that failed him. And and I wondered if you could talk about that. Like, how did the how so how did the city fail him?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think. You know. There's a way in which it's literal. Like, I think, you know, his schools couldn't understand who he was oftentimes and the things that he was grappling with. They didn't allow for mistakes that teenagers make. They weren't generous to him. I think the juvenile justice system... Uh, was very harsh to him and and exacerbated um, some of the traumas that he faced by being falsely accused Uh, afterwards, after he gets out. There's not really a lot of options for him, you know, and even though he's looking for options, and uh, I think that lack is a form of failure and the the press and the police kind of paint him with the criminal label. Um, and so like, there's very literal ways in which he's failed, you know, by a kind of punitive society that just wants to isolate and punish people who are perceived of as bad. But I think in a broader sense, the city fails him because there's not a way that we can think of uh, youth of color as fully human. And there's a perfect victim narrative where we're looking for the perfect victim all the time. We feel like we can't have compassion for someone if they any way compromise what we view as innocent, right? And I think Sito wasn't a perfect victim, you know, and uh, nobody, no youth that I describe in this book is perfect, right? And, and they have their own struggles. They make their mistakes. Um, some are able to bounce back from those mistakes and continue living, and some aren't, you know? And so I think that's a form of failure when society condemns people and it labels them, writes them off, and so they're not they're not able to, to get another chance, right? And and that's the wider kind of philosophical failure that I'm talking about.
3: Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Um, and so this this question is about, I guess like broader trends that I see in um, in anthropology, I guess, and maybe the academy in general. But it seems like anthropologists are increasingly turning to study their own families. And they're also kind of focusing on the individual as opposed to maybe wider social groups. And people are also including more information about their personal lives in their work. And while this isn't brand new, I think there's precedents for this that have, that have happened, you know, many, many, many years prior. um, I just, I see it increasingly happening. Um, And so in the book, you know, you, you do this, you include yourself, your life, your family. um, In addition to Sito's family and life, Um, you're not like this distant narrator, you know, you put yourself in the book and your own, you know, your own life and and interactions. And so I wondered why you chose this kind of material. Um, What, what do you see this adding to our understanding of, of social life?
2: I, you know, in one sense, I just feel like it's more honest. You know, I think really grappling. I think there's a form of dishonesty and disingenuousness when a scholar presents uh, evidence as if they always already knew it, and they don't. They don't talk about their process of discovery and they don't talk about the way in which they came to know this thing. Right. And so I think for me, I wanted to talk about like how this challenged me, challenged my preserved and my presumed knowledge about the topic that I'm supposedly an expert in. And to do that, I had to talk about, um, a little bit of my trajectory and my past and things like that. I think that it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly untenable to um, study the so-called other and just presume expertise on somebody else's life experience. Right. And I think there's different ways that anthropology is grappling with that. I think Part of the way they're grappling with that is by not studying people. I think more and more, there's like STS and animal studies. And not to say that there's something wrong with those subfields, but it is to say that I don't think it's unrelated to the problematics of presuming expertise on other human beings' life experiences, right? Um, Another way is to really be vulnerable and talk about yourself and talk about your own history and use your anthropological orientation to do that, right? Um, For me, it's not that anthropology is not just what I do as a profession. It's like how I see the world. So I see the world anthropologically. So if I'm talking about how something affects affected me or affected my family it's going to use anthropological tools in order to do that you know um, so I think the the historically the um, critique of that has been that oh if you do that you're making it about yourself you're navel gazing things like that and of course there's a way in which that could be true, but I think that critique is really doing something else historically as well. I think it's also um, preserving a space for authority that has historically been white gaze authority, right? And so if we, if we place the boundaries of like what anthropology is in terms of being objective and distance, then that's going to privilege people who are just interested in the scholarly exercise for people for whom it's more than the scholarly exercise then anything you then do is not going to be anthropological enough, not scholarly enough, not, you know, uh, objective enough. So, uh, I mean, I take issue with, just the the general sentiment as it has been historically, um, as it has been historically wielded, uh, particularly on scholars of color, and I, you know, I think that for many scholars of color, but for other people who are just interested in social problems in the real world and who want to talk about themselves and use their biography to talk about social problems in the real world. Uh, Sometimes your own experience is what positions you to write with authority about this social problem. So relinquishing your, your biography is like, it's diminishing your abilities and it's diminishing your yourself in a way and it's diminishing your own sense of lived experience. And I think that that is a trap. I don't think, you know, we should fall into that trap, particularly when, you know, like outside of social scientific discourse, it's always seen as valuable that you've experienced this thing, you know what I mean? Like if it's, you know, anything from Hollywood to uh, other realms of life, it's like if I'm a filmmaker and I'm actually from this place, it's going to be seen as an asset, right? Uh, And so it is suspect when scholarship will lead you to believe that your own experience is and it prevents you from being objective. No, we learn how to, to be rigorous, um, in grad school and, and, and through our training, despite the fact that we may be implicated in various situations. That's part of what we learn, um, as anthropologists. So I think that we need to, um, employ that in terms of what we study.
3: Yeah, no, that was a, that's, that was a really fascinating answer. I think um, I, I would, I would agree with, with much of it. And, um, and, and definitely this, this question of who gets to talk about their, their experience and, and the kinds of idea of me of search and who can be objective is definitely complicated by, uh, by putting this kind of information in the text. And, and you mentioned that, how do we come to know what we know? Um, I wondered about your researching of the book, because it seems like you're reconstructing the life um, of Sito, kind of in the aftermath of violent crime. And it, it seemed to me like you were having to work backward um, in a way in in having to to uh, trace the footsteps of, of his life. And I wondered if you could talk about that experience of researching the book and also, you know, you're interacting with with um, his family and your family. Um, in, in this research. So there's this kind of um, intimacy there. Um, and so how did you navigate that as you were retracing these steps?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it was and it is difficult to, to navigate. And there's, yeah, there's no, in, in some ways, there's no answer to that, because it's still Ongoing, and it's still. um, There's no point in time where I'm like, "Oh yes, I feel like I successfully navigated it." Even when the book is done, because I see how, like the, the triggers that people have, and how traumatic it is to engage with it. You know, so I think people told me stories about Tito and they told me like how they interacted with him. And, you know, I'm writing about many different stories and many different things. And when I put it together, it may trigger some people in certain ways. Uh, and it may play into fears and worries and narratives that they didn't like in the past. And, You know, so I think it's it's hard, you know, when just seeing that and face to face, living with that reality and knowing that's the reality, and it's a double edged thing because like even now, the book is out. Just having the material book for some people in the family, it's like, wow, it's like a token of his legacy. For other people, it's like more triggering. Just to have it out in the world, and it's it's there's worries that it may cause sparks and violence and rehash, you know, cycles of violence and and things like that. So it's not a there's not a like single answer to that, and it's something that we're still navigating. But um, you know. I I'm proud of the work, you know, I'm glad that it it is it's out there and I think um I think what I tried to do was anchor it in Cito's story so that it didn't seem like any one person had more influence on what ultimately came out in the book. So that was kind of my strategy.
3: Yeah, and so this is my, um, I guess, second to last question, and it's about like the book, I guess, being out in the world, um, and I it was it's really about if you could talk about this difference between publishing with academic presses and a more commercial press, I guess. Um, and so anthropologists and academics, um, you know, we're, we're trying to find wider audiences, we're trying to, you know, put our work out there in different ways. Um, and so we're increasingly, I think, turning to commercial presses, and not just anthropologists, but academics in general. And so I wondered if you could just talk about um, the process of, of publication of the book with this press, and, um, you know, any differences that you saw I guess in your uh, dealings with the uh, university press, which you've published with University of Chicago Press, um, with this uh, other more more commercial press.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting moment for anthropology. I think it's because other disciplines like are more prone to publish with popular press. It's like history and sociology, even. Um, the anthropologists haven't been as, as willing. Um, and I think it's an interesting moment because, um, this, 2024 is interesting. Jason De Leon's new book, Soldiers and Kings, um, is coming out in popular press. Viking, I think, um, Angela Garcia's new book is coming out, popular press. Um, think amy cox is working on a book that will be popular press so i think it's it's an interesting moment um the major differences uh you know there's kind of nuts and bolts differences like you basically have to have an agent which means like somebody to pitch it on your behalf uh but entailed in that and then like if things go well, then you'll talk to various editors at different presses or publishing houses about the book. So that process was interesting because, um, essentially, they want to know why should I care, which is another version of like, how am I going to sell this thing, and so. In my case, with Sito, I quickly realized that what they were asking me is that, like, or what they were telling me through their questioning was that I'm an unknown author in their world. Sito um, is an unknown person in their world. So why should they care, you know? And that's a harsh reality to face cuz like obviously I deeply care about it and um there's I think there's scholarly import but that's not enough for them you know and so they a lot of them didn't want to pass on it because they couldn't see what about it would reach the audience that they want to sell books to. Um, so, out of all the people that I talked to, only like a couple actually got it in terms of why it matters to kind of focus on a singular story and read beyond the headlines and tell the story behind the story in terms of Cito's life. And so that was eye opening for me that oh wow, you know. This is not everybody doesn't get it. Whereas in academic press, the benefit of academic press is like at least the idea is enough for them. <laughs> you know, I mean? at least the scholarship, the conversation, that in itself has value. Mm-hmm. So if you have something like that, you know, it's valuable. So I actually appreciated academic presses more through this process because of that i mean i think the thing that is real is like the capacity of an academic press to reach the audiences that you want to reach you know and facilitate the conversations that you want to have facilitated and you know with this book i'm talking in prisons and talking to communities in cities that I want to talk to. And that's being facilitated by the publisher in in many ways. So that's the difference, you know what I mean? And for me, it was worth trying to be able to do that. But, um, yeah, I think... The sweet spot is to find a publisher who can give you access to these things and actually cares, but that's that's not um, necessarily easy to do, you know.
3: Yeah, thank you for that. I'm sure that'll be helpful for many people um, in thinking about navigating this world of presses and um, what, what they value and how to you know, how to think about that when you interact with them. Um so this is the last question. And so now that CETO is out in the world, um, what projects are you are you thinking about next? Um, or what are you what are you working on now? Um, or what do you have like coming up on the horizon that you're that you're involved in?
2: Yeah, I mean a couple things on the horizon. Um One, I think with uh, my last book, The Torture Letters, I got interested in like thinking about different audiences and youth audiences and like how to talk to them about difficult topics. And I got into animation and did an animated film about uh, the history of police torture in Chicago. And that's been really interesting experience because I've been able to get that film in front of um, middle school and high school students and have conversations about their experiences. Uh, And so I'm working on a graphic novel that's about police violence more broadly, that I hope to also have conversations at the middle school, high school level. Um, Hope that, that book will be able to facilitate that. Uh, so that's most immediately that probably will come out next year, hopefully 2025. Um, then, yeah, then I'm also thinking through just a larger tradition of, uh, black survival stories and the way that we pass down stories as a kind of inheritance, uh, and that's a book that I've been working on for a while called Black Cargo, um, which, yeah, I'm, I'm still writing and, and and thinking about, you know, those issues.
3: Wow, that sounds great. And we will look out for that as well, particularly the graphic novel that's that's coming out, but then also the the work that you have going for the future. Um, so thank you so much for talking about the book. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum. I've been speaking with Lawrence Ralph, who is the author of the book, Seto, An American Teenager and the City That Failed Him, published by Hatchet Book Group and Grand Central Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to engage with it, and I appreciate it.